we are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. It is an insider look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall, will give his unique perspective on hot topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Teledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Based on the Wired cover story by Jason Parham and directed by Princess Penny. Executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter. A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change, while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. If you were there for Meet Me in Temecula or Thanksgiving Clapback, you need to see this series. If you weren't there, time to dive in. Watch how Black Lives Matter grew and gained force because of the voices on Black Twitter, bringing these issues to the forefront like never before. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Morning, everybody. It's DJ NV, Charlemagne the God. We are The Breakfast Club. We got a special guest in the building. A legend when it comes to this hip-hop Come thing. On, man. Ladies and gentlemen. Fab Five Freddy. Hey, Welcome, hey, brother. Hey, hey, man. Pleasure to be here, man. What's happening? What's man, happening? Pleasure to have you, brother. Oh, man. Thanks so much. Man, for, first of all, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, we just celebrated 50 years of hip hop. Incredible. What, what does that mean to Fab Five Freddy? Oh, man. Like I said, it's been, I tell you, it's been incredible just going through the motions, but mm -hmm. at that Yankee Stadium gig, uh, the vibe in the, amongst the people, the mm -hmm. energy, that enthusiasm, that, mm -hmm. Like grown folks, you know, that lived through it, been through it, heard all these hits, having an incredible time. And then when them acts was on, I'm looking way up all around and people up in the highest points of Yankee Stadium, mm -hmm. rocking the house. Mm -hmm. So that hit me like, wow, this people really feel this. It's just hard to articulate how much it resonated for the community that mm -hmm. made this all happen. Mm -hmm. And to be in the Bronx, 
Like it was just, uh, it, it all came together for me. Did, did you ever think that hip hop would take it this far? To quote the late, day, I know I love that quote. Wallace? Not, not at all. Wow. Not at all. I mean, I mean, I was clearly thinking of like you know, in terms of the moves I made, having some control over the narrative. You know, being that, being aware that people that look like us in previous generations of our culture didn't have that ability to host the shows. Mm -hmm. The you know, the, you know, the footprint that you guys have and the things that others like us in media and do these things. Have been done. So that was like a super significant thing that I thought about from beginning. But mm -hmm. to see it come to this point globally, the most listened to mm -hmm. form of uh, music mm -hmm. around the world still is just uh, astonishing. Let, let's, let's go back for people that don't know who Fab Five Freddy is. Um, you started off as a graffiti artist. Yes, right. Yeah. So let's let's start from the beginning. How you got into this thing called hip hop and 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 what you created? Because you started off as a graffiti artist, right? And uh, I'm sure you were tagging trains back in the oh, day because that was the thing to do. The trains. That was the thing to do. The trains, mm -hmm. the walls, the buses. Right. Anywhere. It was an audacious thing to do. When when I think back, mm -hmm. so many New York teenagers back then in the '70s just felt like it was okay to put your name anywhere you felt it needed to be. And then the competition of that developed into a real, you know, refined and defined form of expression. Mm -hmm. Ways of using them spray cans that nobody ever envisioned anywhere. Like, mm -hmm. you know, spray cans is just, just you know, to paint an old piece of whatever right. in, around the house. Now we've created, you know, a, a way to make murals that kind of tell stories about who we are and what we, you know, where we are and what we want to be and do and all those things. It was like a fantasy, you know, kind of like rap was that too. I'm right. gonna invent myself and talk about all these things I want to do. And, and in graph, as it began to really flower, it was like, um, you know, I'm a superhero and my name is big. Mm -hmm. And you know, all those things kind of took off in ways that, um, and then, you know, early on, I got a, something clicked in my head that, you know, looking at pop art and what, you know, I used to go to, museums a lot as a kid and looked at what Andy Warhol and these pop artists were doing. And I was like, wait a minute, they're, they're inspired by the same things that we were as graffiti artists, mm -hmm. like like looking at popular culture, names, comic book uh, logos, mm -hmm. you know, and then, um, and that kind of made me want to be a visual artist like those guys were. Um, and then that began a journey that I kind of helped lead taking graffiti art into galleries, turning it into something called street art, which mm -hmm. is also like a global thing. You know, probably heard of my homie, rest in peace, Jean-Michel Basquiat, yep, absolutely. young brother out of Brooklyn, and we met on that downtown scene, had mm -hmm. similar aspirations, mm -hmm. figure out a way to be artists. Like Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. Was Basquiat in the graffiti too? Or? Yeah, he used to, Jean was tagging, but he was putting up these like poetic, um, phrases, quotes that mm -hmm. were not in any way like typical graffiti, but it was a part of graffiti, and nobody knew he was a young brother doing it. Initially, he started out doing something called Samo, which mm -hmm. was sort of short for Samo, shh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that developed, and then we met, and he was on the scene. He turned out to be a brother. Like, he was doing stuff around Soho in the village area. Mm -hmm. People didn't know he was a brother, and we met at a party, um, right as I'm kind of stepping on that downtown art scene, and we both had similar aspirations to try to figure this out. So we began to, you know, we kind of linked up and we're in the same circuit. Blondie was somebody that we met pretty much at the same time. I'm in their ear about this new culture, and then they kind of took us under their wings, so to speak, and brought our work 
some of the first people to buy paintings from myself and Jean-Michel and then made, um, you know, took some inspiration from them stories I told them and made a record called Rapture. Mm -hmm. Hold on, we gotta stay here for a minute. And Rapture was the first video on MTV. That was one of MTV's first videos, which I'm featured in, video, along yeah. with Jean-Michel. I tried to get Flash, was supposed to have come, mm -hmm. to be the DJ I had met, because, you know, was working on the first hip-hop movie, Wild Style, right. mm -hmm. in that same time frame, early 80s. I said, Flash, come down and be in this video. You know, to think that there was no MTV at that time, so we did, music video was not a thing, but still, I'm like, they had this idea to, create a music video. All the people we hung out with were in the video. Flash never showed up. Mm -hmm. So I said, Jean, stand at the turntables. And I tried to tell him, but Jean just stood there with a grin on his face. So in the rapture video. Basquiat. Yeah, yeah Jean yeah. Basquiat. So as Debbie starts to rap, and the first line is Fab Five, Freddie told me everybody's fly. She's saying it to Jean, and then she, you know, the song goes on. So that turned out to be one of MTV's first videos when the channel launched. And uh, close to ten years later, they would they were kind of pressured into trying to you know to to do a show about rap music, and I got the call. Yo, MTV Raps. Yo, MTV I, Raps. I, I want to hear more about Basquiat, but I want to talk about Blondie too, because sure. we had these conversations about fifty years of hip hop, and what I'm starting to realize is the role that Blondie played in in helping get help, helping get hip hop mainstream, and we have it all did. these conversations mm -hmm. about. White allies now. She was one back then because I saw something. I was watching the Ladies First documentary, mm. and she put shot uh, uh, funky. What is it? Funky, funky four plus funky one. four plus one on SNL. Mm -hmm. That's right, and that was me because um, I had been in their ear playing them old school hip hop party tapes, breaking it all down. And so a lot of the things that she's saying in the rap um, were things that I told her, you know, Flash is fast, Flash is cool, mm -hmm. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. Um, on the early hip hop scene, it was fly guys and mm -hmm. fly girls. So fly I'm guys, telling yeah. her the slang, explaining how Flash was the fastest DJ and how that was a big thing. And I was amazed that they went out and made that record. I knew they were feeling me, her and her boyfriend at the time, uh, Chris Stein, that was the nucleus of Blondie. And we, I would, they would invite me to come hang out with them. And mm -hmm. we would just talk um, pop culture. Chris Stein, he was from Brooklyn. He loved the graffiti on the train. So when I said, hey, I'm one of those guys, oh, man, I love that stuff. And then I began to share my ideas, trying to figure out a way to be a visual artist, trying mm -hmm. to make it happen. It was actually them that took that the first time I met Mr. Andy Warhol was through them. And then we, you know, me and Andy and I became friends. He was a supporter of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they met, made that record and it went number one across the country and many countries around the world. And I, I, don't, I don't describe it as hip hop, but it was the first time people heard rapping in a context. And then also what she, was, what she graciously did was shout me out and mention other things in the scene that I told her. Later when Flash did this record, The Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, where he literally made a record, an example of what he would do live, just masterfully cut up a series of records. Mm -hmm. It started with using that using that Rapture song, where you hear that thing, and then he cuts it into a whole bunch of different uh, other songs are right. cut in, which, how, which is... How do you think people like Blondie avoided the label of culture vulture back then? You know what I mean? That's a good question, but that word culture vulture as a concept didn't exist. And I think it was, I mean, if you were really dialed into hip hop, which wasn't 
that big of an audience outside of mm-hmm. New York. Most people didn't know what the hell she was doing. They just were big Blondie fans. Mm-hmm. She she sang as the record opened in her lovely voice and then broke into this rap and was pretty decent at it, you mm-hmm. know, all things considered. It's not like I sat there with her and tried to teach her how mm-hmm. to rap. Mm-hmm. She had rhythm and just said, oh, I'm gonna make a record. I've been in her ear a lot and this record was a reflection of that. It was such a gracious thing because it turned out to be a calling card for me. Nobody really knew who I was. I hadn't been on TV then, you know. Mm -hmm. And then when MTV happened and they decided to try it out immediately, it had the highest ratings any uh, show had had at that time. Then people began to figure out, wait a minute, that's the guy that Blondie mentioned on the rap show. Let's go back to Yo! MTV Raps. So Yo! MTV Raps, they flip this channel and they create this hip-hop show called Yo! MTV Raps. Right. I'm sure at the time it was kind of like a... a, a stab against Ralph McDaniel's Video Music Box. No, not at all. Nah, Ralph was definitely, I was a fan of Ralph's show from the beginning. But um, they were resistant. What MTV was trying to do, it's interesting that you you guys are now, you know, have this big position doing radio. Because of guys like you. Absolutely. Because of guys like you laying that oh, foundation. Yep. Well, you know, the thing was, radio was pretty segregated. And in the American charts, I mean, England was different. That's why I referenced America. Pop pretty much meant white, essentially. Right. So no matter what kind of record you made, if you, you could, you know, make a record that was pop in all the de- de- descriptive ways, the people doing it were black. They would most often off end up on the R&B or the soul chart or the dance chart. And so MTV was set up to try to mirror that, um, a visual form of what, of what American radio stations were. Mm-hmm. And so when black acts got big, they were like, why am I not getting any love on there? And so with the exception of a little Lionel Richie, a little Prince, um, there was very little black music to be seen. And then um, I think it was Michael Jackson's label, uh, Columbia's um, CBS, if I'm not mistaken, Epic, mm-hmm. which, whichever one of those, really... Uh, pressured them and they said listen we're going to pull all our other acts which included Bruce Springsteen off of MTV if you don't play Michael Jackson I think that specifically was Billie Jean Mm -hmm. and then they played it the numbers went through the roof and then came Thriller and everything like that so that really they had to realize that it's time to change up that Mm -hmm. attitude and then there were two young white guys at MTV Peter Darty and then Ted Demi rest in peace uh, Peter I'd known on the downtown scene. He knew things I was, moves I was making with Blondie and, mm-hmm. and, the, and hip-hop's first film, Wild Style. And so he um, was in their ear, like records were selling like crazy, Run DMC, LL, some of those first early hip-hop records were going crazy, no marketing, no promo. And so they said, okay, we're gonna try, try this out, and they tried it. Keep, and also I'd like to mention, there was a, a European version called The Yo Show, that a female named Sophie Bromley, a French woman, North African French woman who was really cool, had hosted for a short period of time, mm-hmm. only on MTV Europe, and then they decided that, so that's where the yo came from, there was a yo, and then they said, okay, well, we have, we're gonna call it Yo MTV Raps, and it went um, through the roof. And they called you first, you were the first host yeah, that they wanted. Yeah, I was the first wanted. host, because I knew Peter, and they saw the moves I was making, they saw the Rapture video, they saw, the film Wild Style, which you know I produced mm-hmm. and all original music for, and then you know one of the lead characters, so I had a bit of a presence, and they you know made this argument, and they said, "Let's give it a try," and the ratings were crazy from the jump, and so I held down the Saturday slot. They'd asked me about a year or two into it if they wanted to get a daily version of the show, and I didn't want to overexpose myself. Plus, I'm 
I'm di directing music videos at the time. The first video I did was my philosophy. KRS One. KRS One, and then a whole string of videos. So I wanted to stay in my lane. I didn't want people to be like, oh man, I'm tired of seeing him, him on the screen. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever. Like a lot of those other VJs would be on there for hours introducing all these, you know, Duran, Duran and whatever else. And then they luckily found Ed Lover and Dr. Dre. How long were you working at your own TV Raps before they brought in Ed Lover and Dre? It was about, it, I guess it was close to two years, the, the first two, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. And you yeah. wasn't you wasn't upset with leaving, or you wanted to leave, or was it? Well, when it ended about six or seven years in, it was, which was incredible run, it was kind of sad that it came to an end. But I realized, like you know, those acts that debuted on Young TV Raps were so pivotal; they were so defining of the culture. Like the first time people saw, you know. Tupac, mm -hmm. N.W.A., mm -hmm. you know, Luke and them. I would go to these areas where yeah, they were. Yeah, you, you invented that. Everybody that's doing these 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 shows now where they go to where people are, that's mm -hmm. absolutely Fab Five Freddy. Fab Five Freddy invented the on-location conversation. Yeah, and that was motivated by the way MTV had been set up. The VJs would be in a room. They would have all these kooky images going on in the background, kind of a crazy, you know, just mashup of visuals, and you, they'd be on for two, three, four hours at a time, and it was like, I mean, they'd be like, man, I just want to see this video. I, you know, you know, it's lame dude on the screen. What's going on? So I just was all about less is more was a thing for me, and um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful run. I, I know we're gonna be all over the place because you just got such a great history. So many gems. Like, I, and I know you say you didn't see hip hop going this far, but as far as hip hop becoming mainstream, you played a big role in that like when I think of the movie Wild Style like what did that movie mean to you and hip-hop at that at that time yeah well you know that was an idea that I had had to try to create a better look for us a lot mm -hmm. of times in the media when somebody was a young black or Latin person when they would when they were seen you know some cool street person it was almost always in a negative context mm -hmm. and I wanted to try to do something to change that narrative also as trying to be a visual artist which was a main thing I focused on, but dabbling in other forms of creative expression, I wanted to just put us all in a better light and then show what we were doing. So the idea that I had had for Wild Style was to show a way to show the connection between all these elements that are part of hip hop now. That didn't exist before. So the idea was to make a film that showed the connection between this rapping, this DJing, the break dancing, and the visual form of expression graffiti. And I hooked up with this cat, Charlie Ahern, who was an underground filmmaker on the downtown scene in New York. Mm -hmm. He had made a super low budget movie about Kung Fu that had caught my eye. When I linked with him, I basically pitched this idea for the movie. And he said, essentially, let's get busy. So then we started researching, um, going to parties in the Bronx, going to the T Connection, the Ecstasy Garage, meeting Busy B, Cold Crush, Fantastic. Uh, Funky Four Plus One More, including Shot Rock. And that was how, to jump back to the Blondie thing, when they got the opportunity to host Saturday Night, not Saturday Night Live, they also got to pick who the support act was. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to bring somebody hip hop on. So we talked about Flash and the Furious Five, of course they were big, but then I said, you know, the Funky Four, similar to Blondie, has a female like yep. out front. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a nice counterbalance. That's what they talk about in the ladies first, Doc. I don't know if you've seen it, but. They, like they break that whole thing down, like oh, it was all because of Shah Rock 
that Blondie wanted her to wanted them to be the group. Correct. So yeah. that was me behind that, and that wow. was incredible. I remember being at Saturday Night Live for the taping of that, and it was a young brother that had I didn't really get to kick it with him that much that had just joined the Saturday Night uh, crew, and that was Eddie Murphy. Wow. Yeah, just started around, and I remember seeing because it was another brother that used to be on Eddie uh, Saturday Night Live in the beginning. Garrett Morris was his name. Absolutely. And then here's this young cat, Eddie, who would later like blow up all over the place. I so. heard of him. I'm familiar. Look at you. A little bit. <laughs> man. You know, it's, it's so it's so interesting because you know I keep hearing you talk about you wanted to make sure hip hop was presented in the right way. Correct. Right. So I, I wonder, like, what are your thoughts on the genre of hip hop now? Well, you know, hip hop is continually amazed me with the different turns and the evolutions that have happened within it. That's been the most fascinating thing for me. And some of the things that I've hoped for have come to light. Like I remember in the very early days when it was all pretty much throw your hands in the air, waving like you just don't care, everybody say, oh, it was pretty much a party, uplifting kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. And that was cool. But then I said, man, if somebody can figure out a way to say something that was socially relevant, I knew that would elevate us. And that was the message. Broken glass everywhere, everywhere. you know, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. Mm -hmm. Really articulated how a lot of people were living in New York and other hoods. And everybody got the memo that we can now throw our hands in the air and have a party, but we can talk about our realities in these streets. And that was exciting. And then, so there's been things that have happened along the way that I've been really um, enthusiastic about. Obviously, when the conscious movement came in, me working with KRS-One in, in the beginning and then Chuck D and everything, that opened up a whole nother chamber that was incredible. Didn't see it coming, but it was definitely needed. And I think hip hop is going to fit. It constantly figures out a way. It evolves. It's like a it's like a living organism. Mm -hmm. And different things affect it, come in. It may go off the track a little bit with certain things, and then it'll come back with something that totally blow, blows us away. Like, I think the African even though it's not specifically hip hop, it's very inspired by the things that we've done. So the, so the Afro beats mm -hmm. and the Ama Piano, which is a sound coming out of South Africa, mm -hmm. a young um, kind of dance type sound, which is unique, is incredible as well, as well as what the cats in England have figured out on the grime side, so, you know, Stormzy and those cats that were constantly early in the early days of what they were doing, they were constantly trying to emulate rap groups from over here. I went to England and covered them during the UMTV Raps era. Mm -hmm. I remember London Posse was one of the hottest groups at the time that had a New York East Coast kind of rap flow, but they never really blew up as big mm -hmm. as they wanted to in England, but then they figured out how to do it in their own way with their own slang and their own way way of speaking, and they made some dope records and blew up. So. What's your thoughts on uh, a lot of the, the legends and OGs who are the founders and creators and made this platform where there are billionaires and, and people are millionaires, but they haven't got to just do financially. And, and a lot of those brothers are not doing well now, they, but if it wasn't for them, yeah. we wouldn't have the sound. They, they wouldn't be the, the movies, the music, the, the DJs, the rappers. What's your thoughts on that? Because I always feel like, damn, should there be like a, a union for, for the creators of this, you know? Wow. Um, there's something coming up that I'm involved in. I can't elaborate on it uh, a lot. Is right it with LL? Because LL said there's something coming up that he said he can't elaborate on either yet. Yeah, LL is probably aware. I'm a part of what he's doing with Rock the, Rock Rock the, Bell. the Bells. Rock the Bells, by the way. I have he that. said you wanted to 
founders, right? Well, yeah, he reached you out. equity in it. Yeah, I have some equity in that, and he made an incredible presentation, flew me out to really pitch in a proper way. I was so, I'd have got down with him. He didn't have to go that, but I was impressed that he wanted to demonstrate he had learned how to play that business game properly, and I got down with him, signed the papers, and I'm super impressed to see what's happening. So there's something that's coming up, which is um, something that's going to address that and, and do something significant towards people that haven't gotten their just due, but that have had a significant impact. Trust me, in the fall, something's going to go down. You guys are going to get the memo, and uh, hopefully we can continue that. And hopefully there'll be more versions of this that are a significant give back to pioneers. Unfortunately, because in that very, very, very early, almost pre-record days or the beginnings of that, mm -hmm. a lot of cats didn't figure out how to monetize and how to do the kind of good business that you guys clearly have both figured out, mm -hmm. which is incredible. Brothers like like those earn your leisure cats mm -hmm. are yeah. laying out a roadmap mm -hmm. for how we can be um, fiscally um, attuned and aware of ways of doing the proper things with our money. Salute to EYL. Mm -hmm. One more time. I said salute to EYL, earn your leisure. Yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. yeah, the earn your leisure guys. I met, I ran into them the other day, in fact, when, when, when you know, those cats were here in New York. And so that's a problem, unfortunately, that is just is what it is, um, you know. But I think there's been examples, once again, on the positive side, you've had cats that figured out how to, how to do business right, how to, how to accumulate not just be rich, accumulate wealth. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between rich and wealthy. And it's great to see cats working on that now. Yeah, because I thought about that with y'all. Like, what was the future for VJs back then? Like, did y'all even know what the future looked like? Like, what what, what did y'all aspire to be after the VJ thing? Well, good question. Thankfully for me, I was doing something prior. I was already making moves, you know, making art, uh, you know, making films like Wild Style. And mm -hmm. the VJ thing just came to me, really, honestly, which was great. People would run up to me, I want to do this. How do you do it? I was like, man, I'd be awkward because I'm like, I can't tell you how to do it. There's no go to, go to VJ school to right. do this. It was just a moment. Uh, clearly, MTV is a different, it, you know, all that stuff, like, doesn't exist. People can do the millions of people do that on YouTube, mm -hmm. you know, if you will. Uh, so there wasn't really a clear path, if you will. But if you like, you see, like I think, interestingly, um, Ed Lover going to radio along with Dr. Dre initially and being really good at it mm -hmm. was a great transition. Mm -hmm. There were some people that had worked at radio behind the scenes and whatever that then came to MTV. Uh, Stephen Hill. Had been a mm -hmm. had been a radio person mm -hmm. and then transitioned to become one of the producers at MTV. But yeah, I, I, that's a good one, man. There wasn't too many clear paths mm -hmm. other than radio or some type of TV announcing, maybe commercials or whatever. But for me, like I wanted to just get back to doing the the things that I'm doing. I'm like an obsessive creative, mm -hmm. and uh, so that's it. You know, it's just creating, and that's still. I mean, what I primarily do. I mean, you had to be, right? And, and man, when they hear you talking, I'm like, the role that art played in hip hop, when you talk about Basquiat, when you talk about Warhol, I feel like, damn, that might be what's kind of missing. Like that connection to art, like actual art. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting too because of this, the continued success and awareness of, of Jean-Michel and other things that we've done, how street art, like hip hop, is a global form of expression, mm -hmm. people in countries around the world take it to the streets. So people are aware 
of art in a way. And I think that's the great thing about using this tech to inform ourselves. And because I'd like to say all this stuff that we really want to know or to get a at least an overview is a few clicks away. Mm-hmm. And um, you could, you know, who's Andy Warhol? You know, you, I was, you know, like me, I was one of those cats that would go to the library and love spending some time mm-hmm. in some books, and which is a foundation of a lot of things I've done. But now you can you can click through Google it, it and, yeah. and see it and chat, GPT it, and yeah. you know, lo- use those things Absolutely. before those things use you. Well, you surprised? And I feel like Basquiat is, is, has gotten, you know, the Exploded. light put on him because of hip hop. And it's like back then he didn't get the opportunity because he died like before hip hop kind of took off. Right? That was what, 88? Yeah, I yeah. was gonna ask, were you surprised of the explosion? Because it came so late. Well, it was it was building though. So Jean was just a fascinating character. So there was a films and interest in his life once people heard, like you know, who he really was and the things he was doing and the moves he was making. And um, yeah, so it's it's been it's just continues to grow. It like it feeds and it's like a it's like an organism. The 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 awareness of Jean and his work, and then the the exciting stories about his life and basically how we lived back then. You know, we young brothers trying to figure it out and figuring out a way to get in. It's just that Jean is exploded in a significant way and inspired a lot of other people to just dig in and learn more about art. That was the thing that we both cut school and went to museums a lot as young kids and got comfortable with the idea of making art, standing in front of great paintings in the Metropolitan Museum, the Brooklyn museum and things like that, the Museum of Modern Art, and being comfortable with these important pieces that you would later see in different books and stuff, and then going, look, I can do this too, and I'm going to figure out a way in. That was the, the, the strategic thing. There was really no clear way in. So we would huddle and think about ways to get in that weren't the, the kind of formal ways in, and that was through connecting with other people that was making moves like Blondie, other people on the downtown New York scene at mm-hmm. the time, pulled us in and then we like made things happen, put art shows up, you know, group shows and things and then caught the attention of the major players that had to acknowledge what was going on. How many Basquiat pieces do you have? I've had work, artists that are friends usually will trade things with each other. So over the years, me and him being cool, you know, few things would change hands, you know, and things How many like, people called you and be like, yo, I know you got some Basquiat pieces. It's crazy when it comes up. Tell me some of them, them pieces. You know, the numbers on his work is so crazy. It's such an awkward conversation now. It's like somebody asking you about the value of things that you own or can buy now or whatever, which it gets kind of personal at a certain mm-hmm. point. But the things got so crazy. It's a it's an awkward conversation to have because you know you think about the security and how you gonna you know how you gonna hold it down or can you keep this in the house now because it's so crazy. Like, does this make sense to keep this here or should you just find a, a right. safer place? So not that not not just being stolen, but you don't want the house to get flooded or man, catch on fire. So yeah, because it's, it's an it's an investment. It's, and one piece that was just your your brother's art. Now it's like exactly. Jesus. It, so you got a lot. I'm not saying I'm not gonna get into how pretty fast. You ain't coming to my crib. You got enough. You got, yeah. you got some things ain't nobody seen before. Oh well, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting pressed. <laughs> you know what I do want to ask you about Basquiat and Warhol. Mm-hmm. Well, two things. What were those conversations like? Because you see all these Andy Warhol quotes. Like one of my favorite yeah. Andy Warhol quotes is the uh, "In the future, everybody will be world famous, famous 15 for 15 minutes. minutes." Like, did he really talk like that? 
No, but he wrote a book called The Philosophy of Andy Warhol mm -hmm. from A to B and back again. And that was where he had a lot of other really smart things. Andy was very perceptive, very astute about the whole pop culture game before it, be, it developed into where it is now. So he literally saw things that were coming, you know. Um, and so that was a part of the genius of, of Andy. But then his public persona was kind of like simple answers, like, oh, gee, no, you know. So you would, he would kind of come off like he wasn't that kind of savvy a guy, that he, but he really was. It was a very kind of a cultivated persona. So when you got to know him and you hanging out and talk, he really was like a big brother in many ways. And he saw that we were coming up, we were having exhibits, he would tell you, oh, this gallery, watch out for that dealer. Oh my goodness, he's this and that. I was like, oh wow. So he would be very chatty and very talky when you got to know him. But his public persona was a was a whole different thing. It was a Netflix doc that I took part in. And then I felt a little awkward because Andy was gay. And I didn't know he was gay in that regard because his whole perception was I'm um, I'm a asexual if you will. So I was like, okay, you know, he's not messing with anybody. And I'd never seen him around anybody that was his lover, girlfriend, what have you. But the Netflix doc got really deep into the relationships he had. And I felt like almost, almost embarrassed to get all this info that I was like, man, he so, you know, he so st strategically kept it positive to see it all laid out. And I was in that doc, I took part in that, but I just, it was a lot that I didn't really realize was going on. Did you care? He probably didn't even care. Once you Not know. really, yeah. I didn't really care. But it was just interesting, just how crafty he was and how on top of culture he was for a really long time, way before he, be, you know, like into the early 60s. Like the Warhol factory and that scene, almost anybody could have came up in there to hang out and hang around. And that might be like Lou Reed, you know, uh, um, just a whole bunch of, you know, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, like artists, people just doing wild psychedelic drugs or whatever would all hang out. And then somebody just walked up in there and basically shot him. Mm -hmm. You know, this chick said, you're controlling my life. Like, you know, the, just the buzz on him had was driving her crazy. And so that then shifted him to shut down a bit and to close the gates. And then he went to another level with it. But, um, but Imagine was, that you just got shot. You got shot by somebody who's clearly it's a crazy fan. Yeah, listen, okay. You're controlling my life. Well, yeah. well, stop tuning into me then. That ain't got nothing to do with me. Yeah. So that that was a it was a wild story. But yeah, but he was a definite big influence on a lot of us. He had broke through in ways, and then when we started making noise and he started coming to events we were having, it was a symbol that we were doing the right thing. And you know, he was acknowledging the work, and then. It took it to the next level. Um, him and Jean-Michel collaborated on a series of paintings together, and that mm -hmm. was, like, unbelievable. So that got Andy to put the brush on canvas in ways that he hadn't done in many years. And it was You got any of those pieces? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about y'all being, you know, young back then, it's like, yo, what... And you, like, I don't... What were y'all... What was y'all aspirations? Like, what did you and Obasquiat want to do? Like, we were just... You know, that's a good question, too, kind um, um, we were just trying to um, have an impact as artists. We were trying to rock our scene, which was a downtown scene. This was obviously thinking this is pre the internet and pre access where anybody can have instant access practically mm -hmm. to anything going on in the world. Pre big money. 
Yeah, but mm -hmm. it was pre-big money. And big money, we were looking to be comfortable and be able to pay the bills and pay the rent mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, have good meals and take, you know, hang out with our friends and party. We didn't have that. It wasn't like a, like a, like a focus on just getting paid. It was really making an impact with, with, your, with our work and really being heard and, and being seen. That's something that led me at a point when I'm making paintings and was doing pretty decent at it, I was getting a little restless with just painting. And Jean and I both had talked about using any medium we can get our hands on. So make music, which he, he dabbled with a bit, um, produce films as well as be in films, which you know we both did at that time. And so that was um, one of the motivating things that a lot that we that we talked about and were just driven to kind of find ways of expressing ourselves. Do you remember how much? And I know we ask a lot of questions. Do you remember this was a long time ago? Do you remember how much paintings went for back then when y'all sold paintings? You or Basquiat or even Warhol? What like what they were going for price wise back then? In the beginning, if you could sell your work for a few thousand dollars, that's great. And then if things move, then those numbers could either quickly go up or go up at a nice moderate rate. So because as people acquire the work and, you know, work is accepted and respected and, you know, written about and other people want to show the work, there's an incremental increase in the prices. And then at a certain point it can just go really, really crazy, which it, it, it clearly did for Jean. But 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 you know, he 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 received um a lot of that, like, while he was alive. And then sadly, unfortunately, you know, passing really young at 27, then it just shifted into a whole nother level. Right. Which, uh, you know, was just a part of it. But I think the great thing, though, is there's a lot more young artists, just artists of color, even artists that, that laid the foundation back in the times of the Harlem Renaissance, um, significant black artists, Jacob Lawrence, Romar Bearden, Charles Austin, a lot of these artists, there's a long list of these artists that were from the Harlem Renaissance mm -hmm. period that were strong and incredible that because of the way racism was at that time, they just didn't get the kind of love and acceptance. But a lot of that has been changing. A lot of institutions and museums are reaching out to realize like, like we missed getting mm -hmm. these significant works, which is a part of the story of American expression, visual artists. So there's a lot, there's a strong effort and a lot of dynamic young artists now making mm -hmm. moves, you know, in America now, way more than we're ever doing it that are getting like, you know, serious top, top tier, you know, recognition, collectors, et cetera, et cetera. What, so. what was it like for you in 1991 when the New Yorker named you the coolest man in New York City? Yeah, that was crazy. Susan Orlean wrote that article. It was a profile. It was about 15 or 16 pages in the New Yorker. Yeah, that was wild. I remember um, this one. Yeah, it had been written about a lot at that time, you know, different articles about hip-hop, different aspects of the culture, being on Europe TV raps. And here comes this, this woman who wants to do a piece on me. She comes and hangs out with me a few times. She knew nothing about hip-hop. And what I loved most about that piece was how right she got it, how hard they worked to tell the story accurately. People had butchered how to say my name. Mm -hmm. They would always ask how long I think it was going to last, meaning that they thought this was all like a brief passing fad. Mm -hmm. And here's this woman, Susan Orlean, came, and she got real curious and wanted to hang out with me while I'm taping your TV raps, while I'm having meetings planning from 
music videos I'm directing and just listening to me talk. Obviously, you know, I'm into a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And she caught it all and, and you know, like 15, 16 page piece for The New Yorker, which was incredible. The only thing about the, being in New York at that time, it wasn't read by a lot of a lot of people in the space that we were in at the time. Mm -hmm. Like Vanity Fair was was kind of hot at the time, and I used to think, man, I'm kind of due for you know for, for like a nice write up and maybe you know like in Vanity Fair something like that. And then the New Yorker came along, which is considered like the greatest magazine, some of the greatest writers mm -hmm. in American history have written for them. And here they doing a 15 page profile on me, you know, this hip hop person doing this cultural stuff. But it, it was pretty good. And it's amazing that it still pops up. People see it on the internet and stuff like that. Did, did your ego ever get out of control? Not really. You know, the thing about my ego, I'm glad you you, you got you got good questions. I see why y'all so y'all y'all both are so nice at that this. That means the world coming from you, but absolutely. Nah, thank you. So I had like people in my life, like my father grew up with a jazz legend named Max Roach, mm -hmm. who became my godfather. He to the drums is what Charlie Parker to the sax, Miles Davis to the trumpet, Dizzy Gillespie. He's in that category of cast that defined a new form of jazz, late 40s, 50s, called bebop. Be around. He's featured with his then wife, Abby Lincoln, in Summer of, of Soul, mm -hmm. performing in, up in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And so he come by the house all the time, kick it with my dad, you know, always wanting to hug me and, hey man, what you doing, you know what I mean? And um, so he was just so cool all the goddamn time. I could never be like be on some stupid, you know, you know, like with a crazy ego. And then even Blondie and them would treat me so good. I'd be up in their house hanging with them, the biggest pop group in the world, literally number one records all over the place. So um, I was, learned to, you know, always got to be cool with with this. So you mean there was always people around that reminded you, like, yeah, I'm not really a big deal, bro. Like, well, you just can't can't go crazy with. It. You got to be humble yeah. and with this and appreciate the fact that you have these opportunities. You know, it's just you just. But it's easy to get caught up in that. You have seen it happen too many times. Mm -hmm. But luckily, you know, some people if they can can, can pump the brakes and check themselves and realize, man, you know. I'm out there being a clown. I'm being an asshole mm -hmm. right now. I, I shouldn't be doing that. And so, and how, yeah. And how did it feel when, you know, at the time when you had all these rappers, right? And these rappers are coming up and, and now they're, they're not as local. They're selling millions of records. Yeah. They're going, but they're mentioning you in their raps. Do you remember the first time you heard your name in a rap? Oh, besides rap too? Yeah, nah, EPMD, couple of guys, man. Man, that was crazy, man. Just such a humbling experience um, to just be recognized. But you know, a lot of cats that really has seen Wild Style, so early, like in your TV raps, a lot of people that was really dialed in on the game mm -hmm. kind of knew who I was, which was really my first real audience was other people in, in, the, in the culture really, which was so cool. And then that began to spread out. But yeah, you know, that was a special, special, special di dynamic. Mm. Do you, uh, do, do, do you do you remember that day you shot with NWA when when you went out there? Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, mm -hmm. that and it became a lot of people's favorite show. I remember it vividly. We we had been playing videos by Easy on the channel, and Ted Demi and would he would talk to Easy often, and Easy was like, "Man, I want y'all to come out. We have a new group," and. Um, I remember them sending us a memo the day before. I said, listen, nobody, don't wear anything red or, or no blue. anything black. Well, no have, black either? No, I'm sorry. Red or blue. Bad. Red or blue. Mm -hmm. um, wear black is what they said. And I was like, man, I've been to LA a bunch of times, but I didn't understand the dynamics in the hood. You know, mm -hmm. I'd be in West Hollywood, 
in and out on some art business or what have you. And so we we was like, okay, so we want to show people this this scene. So let's rent a flatbed truck and let's ride around because you know we hadn't seen like what the hood mm-hmm. was like or any semblance of L.A. And so we meet at the Welcome to Compton sign, and then we get on this flatbed truck and ride around and do segments from the truck. They take us to a swap meet, mm-hmm. and they give us a little insight on how they live. And it was crazy. It was a, I knew it was going to be a great show. I get back to the hotel, and I put the Walkman on, with, got the cassette mm-hmm. of the new album, the N.W.A. album, Straight Outta Compton. I listened to it for the first time, and I'm literally snatching the headphones off my head can't believe the things that they're saying. F the police and just the aggressiveness and the music was in, in, amazing and incredible, but the things they were saying, I was like, man, MTV is not gonna let this this happen. They gonna pull this, man. We done shot this incredible show riding around. Mm-hmm. This nothing's gonna happen. Well, the videos, they weren't able to play the video for Straight Outta Compton, but they still had other videos and other content and the, and the interview played and it and it took off, man. It took off so lovely. And uh, was there anything you saw in like Dre or Cube back then? Like, you know, Easy, Easy became is an icon too. But anything yeah. you saw in Dre or Cube that let you know, oh, I can see them being where they are now. Yeah. Well, I I couldn't predict how huge it was going to be, but they were so smart, and they clearly sonically, particularly Dre, had studied what Public Enemy had been doing. Mm. Sonically, with the, the bomb with, squad? with the that's right, with the bomb squad. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the level of production and using those samples was the state of the art at that time. And they had did something similar. And I remember before I had listened to the record and really understood it, Cube a couple of times in between the interviews was like, "Yo, Fab, what's G rap like? What's up with G rap?" And I said, I'm like, "Yo, G rap's cool and whatever, mm-hmm. whatever." But then when I listened and I heard the aggressiveness of what they were saying, I saw that Cube had been studying G-Rap. G-Rap, of course. G-Rap yeah. was spitting harder than anybody at that time. You know, songs like Rikers Island. In fact, I directed a video for G-Rap, um, Road to the Riches. Road to the Riches. Which, is a sto- which was the first rap song and then the video about the rise and fall of a New York crack dealer. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm the first video to put an image of Scarface in the thing and that led to me getting an associate, associate producer role on New Jack City because when George Jackson came to talk to me, I'm finishing up Road to the Riches and he bugged out and said, man, this is what the, this is the concept, this is the idea in the movie, the undercover cop, which Ice T would play. I had a hand in casting all those guys that That's do that. That's crazy. Wow. So that was a snapshot of that. And uh, yeah, but NWA, man, genius and Cube, mm-hmm. uh, you knowing that he was a, a person that wrote a lot of that, helped structure a lot of that record, it was just amazing. And the fact that it, it had the impact it had was just one of the great things in rap to see it come mm-hmm. together. And then, you know, in the process of doing that, I'm one of the first people that, once again, I'm interviewing these guys, I'm hearing this West Coast slang, I'm getting to hang out with them, and I'm like, money, what's, what, what are the switches? When you're talking about hitting switches. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and the cars, yep. Before you knew, like, what a 187 was, or some of the things that they were dropping, we just had to get the 411, mm-hmm. which is similar to what other people in other parts of the country had to do to figure out what, we were saying in New York, you know, they had to break down the slang. You know, I'm just, since you've interviewed so many people and you've been to so many coaches, whether it was, you know, L.A., the South, New York, when you talk, when you hear the, the Mount Rushmore of hip hop, right? Mm. Who, who, who's your, on your Mount Rushmore as far as artists are concerned? 
Well, you know, when, when I get asked those kind of questions, I'm basically like, I've loved so many, and, I, and I'm and i also aware that there's different eras mm -hmm. where different people were the most important people at that time. Right. So as the eras have evolved, that my Mount Rushmore would, it would be various versions based on, but I'm a lyrics guy. Okay. Primarily. So, so based on lyricism. Oh man, it'd be in the beginning. You know, I, I'll screw up, and I, I won't. I'm sure there's names I'll forget. But in the beginning, of course, you know, like Can only before for every era. Look at you, you know, <laughs> Melly Mel, Melly Mel, uh, Mo D, mm -hmm. Kaz, uh, um, you know. Oh man, who else from that era? Oh, man, I'll screw this up. Um, Cowboy, you okay. know, and then going on f further from that, you know, Kane, mm -hmm. Rakim, uh, 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 G Rap. Okay. Oh, man. Jeez. Yeah. You know. People forget about G Rap a lot. Oh, and man. I don't understand That's... why. Because when you listen to G Rap, you, you clearly get it. Oh, man. His lyrical game was masterful. Mm -hmm. Just incredible way he played with words. Um, who else was my other four from that, from that early period? I guess I would have to put. I drop a cube in there. Cube, okay. You know, and then moving forward, you know, you know, Biggie, mm -hmm. Pac, of course, mm -hmm. you know. Oh man, just I'm stuck right now. Okay, I, just, okay. <laughs> I can't think of all the names that I would love, but pretty much those that you know, Nas, of course, who I luckily got to direct his one of his first one videos. mic, right? He did one mic, one love, one love, one love. Yeah, that that uh, Q-Tip produced, you know, so. Man, just and, and then to see Nas still putting out incredible music yep. on a consistent basis. It's like a jazz artist. It just look, I got something to say. I'm not pressured. It's not about the paper, if you will. I'm just want to express this. I'm gonna drop this on you. And so it's it's he just get that from his pops, probably. One more time. And he probably get that from his pops. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oludara, who used to live near me in Harlem, and we would talk because you know, and that's that's a key thing that Nas has. Similar to something that Rakim has. Both of them, obviously, Nas' dad was a jazz musician. Mm -hmm. Rakim had jazz musician, um, it was a, a singer, I can't remember her name, but earlier connection to, to jazz and that sensibility, I think, is a, is a big part of his flow and his dynamic as an artist. You did Pac's first interview, right? First, first time on national TV. On TV um, okay. A lot of those cats. Um, the first time I interviewed Pac was on this set of the movie Juice, and um, and then we held that show until the movie dropped a few months later, and then we aired it. You know, and I'm also did a cameo in Juice mm -hmm. as myself. Mm -hmm. You know, hosting your MTV raps while the DJ battle was going on, and uh, yeah. Talk about that set, Juice. Shit, that was crazy. I mean, you know, it was. You know, uh, I mean, classic movie to this day, man. Amazing, um, really. So many good. stars from that movie too. Yeah, a lot of good stars. A lot of just really good dynamics. Um, and I'm pretty sure Tupac would definitely have excelled in acting, and clearly would have been Oscar nominated by now. His uh, dynamism on the screen was just something. I think, like like people like that have been able to do it in music and then do it on the screen. Mm -hmm. It's just a it's just a rare group of people that have been able to do that, and still you know resonate to us in such a powerful way. But yeah, Pac and I were pretty tight. Now this this the second time I interviewed Pac once again this was pre Death Row. I liked to this one because it was the first time he I I knew his uh, 
background that like he had a Black Panther link mm -hmm. family wise, and that was the first um, time he'd spoken about that mm -hmm. when I pulled that out of him and he explained how his mother was a Panther, his father, that, so that, that fire and that awareness of what they were fighting for um, was, was a part of his, his consciousness, so which was really interesting. He was a dynamic cat. Like, I mean, he could be the most militant, FOY, Fruit of Islam, Black Panther, and then spin on a dime and just be the illest thug. And that was, I think, a part of the actor in him. He could completely be those people or any other people I'm sure he would have gotten to play in films. He would have been super effective and compelling. So that was a great loss. So you saw that back then? even Absolutely. Okay. Because wow. it was just, you'd be talking to him and he'd, you know, and then he'd flip and be just super hood. And I think the persona that he remained in for most of the his public life after was the persona of Bishop in Juice. Mm. Like, that was his character that, you know, he wanted to, come on, everybody and as many people wanted, wished to have been a big dude on the New York scene or a mm. strong cat that can flex, like, in Harlem and all that. And Juice was his way to do that. And Because, come on, he... He wasn't that dude prior, but he stayed in that character largely and then unfortunately got caught up in this, that, and the third mm -hmm. on the New York side, mm -hmm. if you know the drama, and then, mm -hmm. then went West Coast and you would think he was born in South Central the way he, he repped, you know, on Cali, yep. out there in Cali, which is so super effectively, but he, could, uh, he was convincing in any of those genres or any of those formats he would put himself in. I know you probably got to go. I've got a couple more questions. Why do you think commercially, because you was there from the inception, why do you think commercially the West Coast took off, it seems like to me, before the East Coast? Like I'm talking about with the massive mainstream success that we see mm -hmm. in hip-hop now. Interesting. I just, I don't know, that's... Um... But, but would you say that? Because you had Run DMC, you had LL was, Cool J, you yeah, had... I thought it was their turn. Yeah, we we blew up big and, and dug out and planted a firm foundation. That's why this culture still rocks so hard to this day, because the roots went deep without anything going viral too early or people jumping out there too soon. Hey, so well, Death Row was a monster. Snoop Dogg sold, what, 800 plus thousand his first and second week? Uh, he was like the first hip-hop artist on, on certain magazine covers. Like he, he really was. It was something else. That was it something was. else. And it started with NWA to me, but... Yeah, it was. It, w it was a big thing. They had an incredible movement. Mm -hmm. It was... I think it just followed... They, they added on nicely to the foundation that was laid right here in New York. Mm -hmm. And then once again, I was honored to get to direct Snoop's first video for What's My Name and turned him into a dog. And then interestingly, wow. mm -hmm. you know, I'm in the cannabis business now with a brand called Be Noble, which grew out of a film I made, which you can see on Netflix called mm -hmm. Grass is Greener. And I got Snoop is in my film. And Snoop tells the story, which I didn't know, that he, Dre, I spent that whole summer mm -hmm. living with Dre in Calabasas because the first day of shooting Snoop's video, him performing on VIP records, Right after that, we changed locations in Long Beach. That turns into a, a near riot. That's like not more than a year after the L.A. riots. So we got shut down. Drace is fab. I got to finish Snoop's album. If you can chill and hang, we will get the video done. But my priority wow. is getting this record done. So I'm like, Dre, I'm here. Go why, why was it a riot? Because, you know, L.A. is 
deceptive. You can be in the hood, and I'm a New York cat, so I see cats in the hood. I see cats on the corner, mm -hmm. on the stoop. I can feel the tempo of the neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? In L.A., you don't see cats out. Mm -hmm. So I'm scouting locations. I'm like, oh, Dre, I got this. this. Mm -hmm. And Dre was like, man, it's kind of crazy in Long Beach. But I'm like, man, I'm been there. It's good. Mm -hmm. I didn't see the cats that really live in the hood. At the video shoot, everybody comes out. Everybody's in the crowd. Gotcha. So you got this set, that set. I got the FOI on set as a security. Nobody, I, that's like disrespecting like a like a priest on Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, these dudes in FOI's face, you know, talking smack to them. And my assistant director came to me. I'm at Video Village checking the monitors, sitting next to Dre. They said, Fab, you know, the crew can't work. I said, yo, Dre, is it possible? You know, you can do the Grayson, man. I can't tell them cast nothing. So when I realized they wouldn't listen to Dre, I knew that was going to be a delicate issue. So when we finished that location, we went to the next location. These cats now was ready to get it in. Like three, four fights had um, started, and the police came, the helicopter swung in. They basically shut us down. So it wasn't like a riot, but it was mm -hmm. it was ugly. They had just had a riot, so they didn't want nothing, no massive gatherings like that. So that led, led me to spend the rest of that summer out there hanging with Dre in the dog pound, getting to know them real well, seeing Dre's process in the studio, which was remarkable. Mm. And then we would get a moment to run out and get some scenes that would be other parts of the video. And then towards the end of the summer, there was a big scene that I never got to shoot because Snoop got caught up. Uh, famously, murder, yeah. murder, murder was, case. was the case. I said, man, I'm out of here. This is just it's so enough. enough. I'm going back going to New York. On. But you know, it was interesting, Snoop tells a story that the chronic had become the hot slang word for good cannabis on the street. Mm -hmm. He told Dre, the, the chronic is the hot thing. We're gonna call your album The Chronic, and Dre went with it. It was, it was, it was, it was just amazing to get that story. Be behind the scenes and see it come to fruition. See it come to fruition and get that story years later. And then amazingly, I make this film, Grass is Greener, which looks at the connection between cannabis and America's music. So from jazz and Louis Armstrong, the greatest jazz people, that was their in intoxicant of choice. Um, because, you know, you get really high on cannabis, you still can play your instrument. You know, you, you, like if you, if you get really drunk, that's not happening. Right. And so it was an Im important part of that. And, um, laying all that out, looking at all genres of music from jazz all the way to hip hop, and then looking at the criminal justice thing inspired me to create a cannabis brand called Be Noble. And I'm really fortunate that we were able to partner. Um, we own the company. We, we made a licensing agreement with the biggest cannabis company in America, Cureleaf. Mm -hmm. We give back a 10% of what we earn to, to organizations, and we're in nine states, mm -hmm. organizations helping people victimized by non, for nonviolent cannabis offenses. And um, we, we donate money, and then we take care of the brother that we name. The story that we focus on in the film, this brother was given a 13-year sentence for, for two joints of weed. Mm. And he served seven. His case was a big case. Many organizations were fighting to get this brother freedom. And when he finally got a parole, we, we, we flew back down to film him walk out of prison. And then shortly after that, I got inspired to create this brand, which is doing really well, and raising awareness about these issues while selling right. fireweed, actually, which you know is a growing business mm -hmm. now, which New York, which has now gone legal, is expanding, yep. licenses going out. I mean, there's, there's some well. bumps in the road. So that's a fascinating thing, because once again, I feel so... Um, in, um, just blessed to to be working 
in the space, enlightening people about this um, powerful plant, which has been vilified as a gateway drug mm -hmm. and categorized next to heroin in the schedule. And there's a fight now because there's obviously medical benefits with the opioid crisis going on and hundreds of thousands of people dying. Cannabis can be used in a lot of things that they prescribe opi opioids for, and it's, so it's a beneficial thing. So that's been a been a big thing that I've been working on now, as well as all the other creative stuff, just to share that. You didn't you bring know. any? Oh shit, baby, I got some. Need a little for you. something from a We got you covered on that, baby. Well, um, we got the fifty years of hip hop podcast series in. Oh we'll talk goodness. about that before we get about it. Oh, I know that's what you're here for. That's what you're here for. That's what he's here for. I want to document. Like, Fab, you need you need a document. Absolutely. Like, you yourself. Like, mm -hmm. you have to tell oh, man. your story. Because, you know, I, I hear it in bits and pieces. Whether I've seen Vlad TV interviews. And, you know, of course, uh, read the New York articles and stuff. Oh, but man. I'm like, you need a, the proper telling of Absolutely. your tale. Well, I'm working on I'm gonna I'm going to soon be working on, on my memoir and lay it all out. And then hopefully out of that process... We can get a doc done. You know, it's funny. I you already got a deal? Um, no, we don't have a deal yet, but I got an incredible collaborator who's a very accomplished uh, writer that I, I'm most likely going to work with. And we've had a few conversations. Like I had a brief convo with Questlove actually started a publishing imprint. So did I. I'd like to bid on it. So me oh, and Quest going to be bid. Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. I got, I got, I got my, my post called Black Privilege Publishing with Simon & Schuster. I'd like, I definitely oh, like man. to bid. Oh, man. No, without yes. question, Charlamagne. I'm sorry. I really should have known that. But also, it was great having you guys on the podcast that we did, um, uh, the, the 50 Years of Hip Hop podcast series, which was a fun. I mean, I mean, my, my man here. Hey, King. Aaron King, mm -hmm. the, who, who, who worked with my very dear friend, rest in peace, Combat Jack. That's right, rest mm -hmm. in peace, Combat Jack. Combat Jack show, so it was great to work with him and to really, you know, tell some of those foundational stories about the culture. You can go anywhere your, your podcasts are living, mm -hmm. any platform. That's a Black Effect uh, production. Yeah. Yes, That'll be on yes. Black Effect Work, Heart Radio. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dolly Bishop, who I, Dolly. Yeah. is on your team. We work together, and, you know, it's a... It's a you know it's an iHeart podcast and that was fun to get to uh, relive and tell some of these foundational stories mm -hmm. and especially with you guys when we did the show on on you know hip hop radio it really hit me like you guys have gone at doing this at such an incredible level remembering the Supreme Team Mr Magic and mm -hmm. Red Alert and when those when we just had an hour or two on the weekends right. and now you guys are doing this at such a major level and sharing those stories was special to be mm -hmm. able to remind people of these journeys that mm -hmm. we've been on. It's so easy to just get caught up in what we're doing now. But the, the, the greatest thing about this 50 years is we've been able to, once again, tell the story mm -hmm. of this journey that we've been on and how this thankfully is still going on and going strong. That's right. And the main reason I believe is because a lot of people stepped up and we've been able to take control. Once again, when Max Roach, my godfather, and I'd hear my dad and those guys talk about stories in the jazz era with Miles Davis and them, mm -hmm. they wanted to have their own labels. They wanted to be able to control things. That just wasn't happening in the, in the 1940s and the 1950s because of the way the dynamics in America, racism and things like that. So it was always a part of me to want to be able to adjust that to a certain point and be able to put 
that narrative in there, which which is things that I see you guys do, and I really appreciate that. Well, I, wanna, you, I got one final question. How did you get your name? Because your name, you predate Fab Five from Michigan, clearly. So how did you get your name? And I'm and I know that they probably got it from you. Yeah, they they, they definitely yeah. the, the Fab Five. Yeah. Um, I became a part of a graffiti crew called the Fabulous Five. They were the, one of the dominant groups of graffiti painters in New York, which were known for doing uh, murals on the side of the, primarily on the Lexington Avenue number five train. Um, I, I wasn't a part of that, but I wanted to um, take this whole thing to another level. And I collaborated and got down with a brother named Lee Kenyonis, who was a premier member of the Fab Five Graffiti Group. And, you know, they had kind of eased off painting the most of the Fab Five, and I connected with Lee and shared these ideas about taking it to another level, like from the subways into galleries, museums, and stuff like that. So with the blessing of Lee and the other members, I became a part of the Fab Five. So what you would tag up was, you know, you tag your name and the group you was down with, and then off, and then sometimes I would be referred to as, oh, that's Fab Five Freddy. You know what I'm saying? That's Fab Five Fred. And when Blondie made Rapture, it just embedded it and solidified it when she dropped my name, when she basically was like, Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. And I was like, man, wow, I never thought of it as the whole thing, mm -hmm. but that's a good look. You know what I mean? She represented and gave me a look, and it, it boom. So that's how that really came together. Last, last question. I know you said that, but... I just want you to, to to tell people how difficult it was to tag trains back in the day, because <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't easy. It's not like the train was just sitting there and y'all had nah. eight hours to do what y'all had to nah, do. I mean, y'all had to deal with police. Y'all had to deal with yeah. the train moving. Y'all had to deal with the, the the electricity in the trains. Like y'all had some ish to deal with. It was so it just was just a talk lot. about that. There's briefly. a great documentary that was done the same time we making Wild Style mm -hmm. early '80s. There was a documentary called Style Wars that illustrates. That, yep. In fact, K. Slay who was a young slang. graffiti yep. writer named Dez is featured as a young graffiti writer. And he's, uh, you see him in Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, you had to know where the trains, what we called, called, the, called the layup, or in times when the rush hour is not running, the, the, the extra trains are placed in different areas in the city, sometimes in tunnels, sometimes at the yards. So you had to know which train you wanted to get, to get up on, where that train was going to be, whether in a tunnel or way up in the train yards at the end of the train line somewhere. And then you had to be stealthy on some ninja type energy to get up in there. Cause one of the objectives was also, you know, not to get caught. Mm -hmm. And so you had to have all those pieces together to get in, get out and hopefully not get caught. You ever got caught tagging a train? Never. Never. But what, what would happen to you back when it was raging, which was not a good look, if you get caught, one of your sentences was to go wash walls. So you- <laughs> You had to clean the graffiti off the you train. put on the overalls, they, 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 they give you a bucket and a bunch of chemicals, and you be at some platform in some station having to clean walls, feeling like, man, they, I got caught out here. I feel I'm like a herb now, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't easy. It mm -hmm. was a very difficult thing, and- uh, to, to really develop it. So that's a crazy part that we didn't like to talk about a lot because a lot of the paint was actually uh, liberated. You know, mm -hmm. it's funny when you go into anywhere <laughs> that sells spray paint mm -hmm. now in New York City, they still have the spray paint in a cage. It's like under lock and key. Yep. And uh, 
it had a lot to do with that form of expression. You know, that's right. Had, in, that's something. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm saying, you know, had to get that paint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just amazing how something that people thought was just vandalism back in the day became something so synonymous Art. with New York City. It gave the city character. You see it in video games, yeah. cartoons, yep. everything. Yes. Like, that blows my mind, you know. Graffiti fonts, you know, you can yep. get a font and just use graffiti lettering. So that's that's really satisfying that's to see that it that a lot of these ideas we had have really worked, and I'm excited for the next fifty. All right, well, we appreciate you for joining Fab us, Fab ladies Freddy. and gentlemen. Thanks Fab for having Fab me, Honored to be up here with you guys. Honored to have you, brother. Doing? Absolutely, it's the, the Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. So I'm getting ready to head out. I'm on my way to Burning Man tomorrow. I'm a part of the Burning Man world. Okay. I'm also on the board of directors. Mm-hmm. So I will be in the Nevada desert having a blast. Once again, I know it looks a lot of weird to people if you don't know, but it's an incredible creative experience where artists come, make incredible sculptures. Everybody tells me that. Mm-hmm. Nobody's trying to sell anything. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing work out in the desert. It's like being in a sci-fi wow. fantasy world of creativity. It's amazing. So. Right. And I just want to tell you, man, um, you are the shoulders that so many of us stand on, whether mm-hmm. you are journalists, whether you're a radio personality, the podcasters, none of us would be here without the foundation that a Fab Five Freddie laid Absolutely. back in the day, man. So we love you and we value you, thank you and Sean, we appreciate man. you, my brother. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Envy. I appreciate that so much, man. Yes, sir. It's the Breakfast Club. Good morning. Yes. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us, wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.